Chapter fourteen of Thou Art the Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thou Art the Man by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter fourteen. What love was ever as deep as a grave? The fatigue that Sibyl had gone through since nightfall had made no impression on her physical being, or no impression of which her mind was conscious. If her limbs ached with the tramping to and fro and up and down over the rough ground by the cliff, she had no consciousness of her pain. Her mental suffering, her keen anxieties, her grief and horror at the deed that had been done, left no room in her consciousness for the sensibility of bodily pain she walked up and down her bedroom and in and out to her balcony in the light of a gloomy dawn or stood looking at the sea and the sky a wild sky a rough sea a livid dawn that heralded a tempestuous day and she had driven him out into the storm she had urged him to act against his own judgment which would have bidden him to face his danger. Was it wise? Was it well? Now that the act was irre irrevocable, now that the shattered door told its story of prison-breaking and ignominious flight, she asked herself that questioning with maddening iteration. Ignominious flight. Yes, that was the word. The man who flies from the face of justice must needs submit to the ignominy which attaches to all flight innocence should stand firm and wait the worst that fate can do no doubt that was the idealist view of the situation but then came the thought of stern reality the possible conviction the possible gallows the inscrutable perversity of fate which sometimes dooms an innocent man to a disgraceful death all for the want of some little clue to the thread of that labyrinth of circumstantial evidence and get at the core of truth hidden somewhere in the midst of it guiltless men have been hanged even in this enlightened age and to the end of time there will always be that cruel possibility of innocence paying the penalty intended for guilt on the whole therefore sibyl was thankful that she had helped to get brandon mountford out of the clutch of the law for the time being he might suffer in honour and reputation for that escape he might have to exist under a heavy cloud an exile in some distant country living under a false name cut off from all the friends and associations of his youth but in the years to come the clue to the mystery might be found and the wrong might be righted who could have done it sibyl asked herself and her hand strained across her forehead as if she wanted to wring some sudden inspiration out of her tired brain who could have done it she asked herself and then told herself despairingly i feel as if all my thinking powers were gone i can imagine no one who would do such a deed everybody liked her she had no enemy 
it could have only been some ruffian with the wild beast's thirst for blood some madman a madman yes sibyl turned sick with agony as she remembered what brandon mountford had told her about that inscrutable disease which can change sanity to madness the sudden clouding of the brain the maniac's impulse toward evil oh if it were he after all if my conviction of his innocence should be a mere delusion born of my love for him well after a pause if it is so i am the more thankful that he is free my poor afflicted love marked out by fate to bear so cruel a burden who would not help you to escape the bitter consequences and then came the, a still more appalling thought if he had done this thing if his unconscious hand had taken marie arnold's life who could say whether this first crime might be not the beginning of a series of murders the murderous impulse might recur and this man this man she admired and loved this man of high birth and gentle breeding might become a scourge and a horror to his fellow-men a wretch whose death or whose lifelong imprisonment would be required for the safety of others she flung herself upon her bed and hid her face from the daylight awe-stricken at the horror her own thoughts had conjured up the wind shrieked in the chimney and there was something hideously human in the sound one gust more violent than the rest seemed to shake even those solid walls there was a dreadful silence in the house next morning when sibyl awoke from a sleep of sheer exhaustion she was lying on the bed still wearing the black gown in which she had walked to and fro with all the dust and chalk of the road and the cliff upon it but careful hands had spread a down coverlet over her and the morning cup of tea which she generally took at seven o'clock was on the little table by her bed showing that the faithful ferriby had been watching her slumbers the window she had left open was shut and the closed venetians darkened the room sibyl sprang up from the bed and ran to look at the clock at the mantelpiece a quarter to eleven how long how heavily she had slept a dreamless sleep unshadowed by any consciousness of the sorrow that made waking so terrible the wind had been raging when she last looked at sea and sky the sky was calm enough now when she opened the shutters and looked seaward a dull gray sky but the waves were rising and falling with a slow and sullen force and the livid patches of foam showed here and there upon the leaden-coloured expanse she rang her bell and ferriby came bustling in oh how tired you must have been miss regular dead beat to fall asleep in your clothes and to sleep from twelve o'clock to close upon eleven all but twelve hours you too such a light sleeper i've got your bath ready but let me fetch you a fresh cup of tea first you can't drink that stuff 
pointing to the neglected cup. It's stone cold. Never mind the tea. Yes, I was very tired. My bones are still aching. I don't wonder at it, miss. Dear, oh dear, what times we're living in. Such a storm early this morning. We shall hear of ever so many boats lost before dark, Hampton says. And then Farabee related how Mr. Mountford had broken out of the lock-up in the midst of the storm, a proceeding to which she evidently attached to the idea of satanic intervention, as if he might have made his bargain with Zamiel or Mephistopheles, and how the hue and cry had been raised, and the country was being searched far and near, and the telegraph wires at Ardliston and post office were working as they never had worked before. All I can say is I hope they won't find him, concluded Ferriby. He was the nicest gentleman that ever came into this house, and if he did murder that poor young lady in a fit of madness, as they say he did, why, it was his affliction and not his fault. Who says that he murdered her? Well, miss, everybody thinks he did it, and madness would be his only excuse. Not that there was anything like madness in his ways. Thomas, who always waited upon him, says there was never a politer, quieter gentleman. None of your swearing or flying out at a servant for nothing. He had rather a nervous manner sometimes, Thomas says, a little absent-minded, but never no violence. Nothing looked like being out of his mind. Poor Brandon, to be discussed and anatomized in the servants' hall, to have fallen so low, the talk of the village inn, hunted by policemen, his description telegraphed from place to place. It was nearly one o'clock when Sybil went downstairs, white as a ghost in her black gown, and wandered aimlessly about the house, almost wondering not to see Marie's bright face in any of the rooms. This dread mystery of death was so difficult to realize, even now, after all she had suffered within the last day and a half. The horror of the murder was ever-present in her mind, but she had not yet realized the actuality of death, the disappearance of one familiar face, the silence of that voice that had ever so lately been a part of her home and of her life, never more to see Marie Arnold, the companion of all her girlish years, the happy years in which there was had been no shadow of care. Now life seemed all care and terror and difficulty, it needed all her stoicism to visit the room where the dead girl was lying, that room so quiet and pure and peaceful, yesterday defiled by the muddy boots of the coroner's jury, filled with ghoulish mutterings and whisperings. Not a trace of those rough visitors remained today. The white curtained bed rose pale in the dim light that crept through the closely fastened venetians and the coverlet was almost hidden under white flowers azaleas lilies all the most precious blooms that the hot houses of ellerslie could supply 
Sir Joseph's own trembling lips had given the order. Be sure, there are plenty of flowers. She was so fond of flowers. You'd like to see her, wouldn't you, miss? asked Ferriby when her mistress was dressed. Like? No, it could not be a question of liking. Every nerve contracted with pain at the thought. Like? No. But it was her duty, perhaps, a duty she owed to the dead, to stand for a little while by that placid form which could never more rise up and hold out loving arms toward the adopted sister. It might seem cold-hearted, self-absorbed, to keep aloof from that awful room, where the great mystery offered its solemn question to Christian and philosopher alike. After this, what? Or is this the end? Ferriby's tone implied that her mistress ought to look upon the dead, and Sybil wanted to do what was right. She wanted all the household to know how truly she had loved Marie Arnold. She went to the door of the room, that room which she, she used to enter so gaily a dozen times a day, to show Marie this or that, books, flowers, finery, to ask questions, to tell little scraps of girlish news, to discuss an idea, any sudden fancy that might have flashed into her brain. Marie had been the only close companion of those impressionable years, the years which changed the child into a woman. An upper housemaid opened the door at Sybil's like knock and the cool darkness of the room the perfume of lilies suggested a chapel in some southern land sibyl looked fearfully toward the white bed yes there was that rigid outline under the snowy sheet that which she had seen and shuddered at in painting and sculpture but which her eyes had never looked upon until now in its terrible reality, for the father's thoughtful care had excluded the child from the room where her mother lay in that last sleep. Slowly and with noiseless footsteps, she approached the bed, that when the housemaid put out her hand to raise the snowy lawn, which lay so lightly over that marble form, Sybil stopped her with a faint cry, no 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 let me remember her as i knew her not like this she sank on her knees at the foot of the bed covered her face with the hands and thought a prayer a prayer for the repose of that passionate soul such a prayer as the anglican church forbids but which instinct prompts whenever the living look upon the dead she prayed for the peace of the dead, and prayed still more fervently for that unhappy fugitive whose life was dishonored by this untimely death, who, guilty or innocent, had to bear the shadow of crime. Her eyes were drowned in tears when she rose from her knees and took one of those fairy-like blooms from the shower of lilies of the valley which had been scattered over the sheet and with this poor little flower in her hand she stole softly from the room where the middle-aged housemaid sat by an open window 
reading her Bible in the flickering light that filtered through the Venetian shutters. For the housemaid, pious, middle-aged, and a confirmed spinster, there was a dismal relish in this quiet guardianship of the dead, to sit in a cool, flower-scented room and read the prophet Jeremiah in the spirit of unquestioning faith that seeketh not to understand what it readeth was better than to overlook housework and pry into those dusty corners which the pert young pink-frocked housemaid is apt to neglect the upper housemaid felt the importance of her charge most of all when sir joseph sat sobbing beside the bed as he had done in the dead of night when those passionate tears of his had startled the watcher from a profound slumber she felt she was being admitted to the family secrets that her situation always a good one would be on a higher footing from this time forward the door closed upon the chamber of death but scarcely had sibyl crossed the threshold when she met herbert urquhart in the corridor where even in the dim light from shrouded windows she could see how pale and worn he was are you going to look your last upon poor maria she asked no no i never look on the dead i shouldn't like to confess as much to a sportsman but even the sight of a dead stag harrows me it suggests what i must come to sooner or later i was on my way to your boudoir you have news of him yes there is news of a sort i want a few quiet minutes of quiet talk with you sibyl i may call you by that name may i not all we went through together last night gives me a kind of claim doesn't it what does it matter she exclaimed impatiently if you have anything to tell me don't keep it back if it is bad news i would rather hear the worst at once she looked as if she were going to faint and he thought she would drop at his feet he put his arm round her to steady her and drew her gently toward an old-fashioned settee under a large picture by snyder's which represented the crisis in the life of a hunted boar his ultimate fate nobody had ever troubled to inquire into boar hounds landscape had all mellowed to a dead level of brown varnish and blue mould she thinks only of him cares only about him thought urquhart as he seated himself by sibyl's side with his arm still supporting her it galled him to think that she took no more notice of his arm than if it had been her old nurse's you have bad news she said agitatedly he has been followed arrested alas if the worst has happened it is even worse than that oh god oh god have mercy upon me 
what could be worse except his death ah sibyl that is the point i am so sorry for you so sorry that this man's fate should have such a power to afflict you this man a stranger here a few weeks ago don't talk like that she cried imperiously i love him that is enough for you to know i am not ashamed of my love what has happened to him for god's sake speak she clutched the lapel of his coat looking at him with wild despairing eyes startling him with the vehemence of her feelings can you bear to hear what i must say if i have to tell you my worst fear i must bear it nothing can be worse than this torture my poor sibyl there was a gale this morning after the smack sailed a gale from the southwest blowing dead on our coast yonder they were to put him ashore in the early morning to come back to ardliston with the news that all was safe i was down at the village an hour ago and the men had not come back there was no news of the mary jane they may have gone farther up the coast hardly was such a wind at their back the storm was sharp and short but murderous while it lasted there is a feeling of apprehension in the village i saw the skipper's wife she flew at me like a tigress told me that if her husband and his boy were lost it was my doing it was my cursed money which had tempted him to take his boat out on such a night what cried sibyl was there any danger did you know that there was a risk of the boat being lost oh if you did know that what a wretch you are luring him to his death under the pretense of saving him over persuading him against his own reason and i i helped you this is sheer madness said urquhart rising indignantly and moving away from her if you take the thing in this spirit i can say no more you knew as much about the night as i could know you heard the wind rising as i heard it but neither you nor i could know that there was to be a squall after daylight you knew what i knew of Mer mountford's peril and that to stay where he was meant a disgraceful death and to escape a possibility he has flung away his life said sibyl despairingly well we have helped him to some purpose if the boat is lost and his life with it you and i are his murderers it is folly to talk like this absolute folly urquhart an answered savagely if he is drowned well it is a better death for a gentleman than being put out of this world by the common hangman and after all he was nothing to you not even your affianced husband yet you have hazarded your good name for him and now you're endangering your reason she looked at him with a vacant expression as if she hardly heard him or heard without understanding 
what is the woman's name she asked what woman the woman whose husband owned the boat that is lost or that may be lost there is nothing certain yet the woman's name is kettering where does she live in the lane at the back of the fisherman's rest what are you going to do as sibyl went toward the staircase i'm going to mrs kettering what madness you will make yourself the talk of the village i am going to see mrs kettering the boat may have come back perhaps there may be good news for me at the village what will your father think he will not mind he believes in brandon's innocence as firmly as i do he will change his mind perhaps when he hears that brandon has run away murdered urquhart walking up and down the gallery as sibyl had left him he did not pace that long gallery from end to end but turned at about two-thirds of its length giving a wide berth to the door at the east end the door which closed marie arnold's room marie's room how soon it would cease to belong to her now soon that a strong personality would have passed out of the daily life of ellerslie house to leave to urquhart's mind at least a blank which none could fill there was no good news in the little seacoast village not a whisper of hope to be heard in all the length and breadth of the long straggling street sibyl found the lane behind the fisherman's breast a lane of about a dozen stone cottages full of sad faces and weeping women the mary jane with her crew of four had gone to the bottom all hands on board and there was scarcely one of those rough stone cottages whose inmates were not weeping for kinsman or husband sweetheart or friend the intermarriages of the small seafaring community had interwoven the whole village in the ties of kindred there could hardly be a death at ardliston which would not justify all the inhabitants in putting on mourning whence it arose that rusty black was a chief where from one end of the village to the other three family names prevailed along the straggling street and if the people were not ketterings they ne must needs be hessels or garforths while garforth hessels and ketterings were all allied by cousinship thus it was that lamentations for the loss of the mary jane filled the air in the narrow lane behind the fisherman's rest and the dishevelled women sat crying on the rugged stone steps leading up to the cottage doors while little groups clustered at the corners talking of the catastrophe the fact of which no one doubted alas there seems no room for doubt since fragments of the mary jane had washed up ashore near one of the most dangerous rocks on that iron-bound coast between ardliston and allen bay and it was clear that the ill-fated boat had been blown on to that rugged point which the fishermen's wives all knew and had heard of as a devouring monster and had 
been split into matchwood some among those time-honoured boats in their fisher fleets gaily from ardliston in fair weather needed no gigantic forces of nature to destroy them the mary jane had been renowned as a swift sailor and had come off with flying colours in many a fisherman's race at the annual regatta but age will tell and the mary jane was older than her owner had ever cared to remember well she had gone she'd have lasted out our lives if my good man hadn't flown in the face of providence to please them at the great house them that should have known better sobbed the widow sitting distractedly in the midst of a sympathizing group while her little children played in a corner of the room and the latest baby latest in a family where there seemed to be at least three babies slept peacefully in the closet bed a bed built into the wall capable of being enclosed with a sliding shutter the widow started to her feet at the sight of sibyl pushed back the ragged hair from her eyes with angry hands almost as if she could have plucked it out by the roots oh it's you miss higginson she cried i wonder you've got the cheek to come and look at me and my children you that have made these babies orphans and me a miserable woman all along of trying to save your sweetheart's life his life what was his life worth again my poor jacks jack has had wife and children to work for jack has a never did wrong to man or beast in his life drowned trying to save your sweetheart a murderer that ought to have been hung oh it's wicked that's what it is god almighty didn't ought to let such things be he didn't ought but there there's a world's too full of people now for the god almighty to care as he did for the israelites when there was only his chosen to look after it's a wicked wicked world and you're a wicked girl sibyl higginson to have tempted my jack to risk his life for the sake of your cursed money come come mrs kettering urged a motherly voice you've got no call to fly at miss higginson who's always been your true friend my true friend yes till last night but my bitter enemy for ever and ever after last night now susan you know you was all in favour of jack's taking the job he told you there'd be dirty weather but you were all for making the best of it you was now you must remember that susan kettering threw up her arms and beat her careworn forehead with her clenched fist remember oh god as if i could ever forget it was to earn bread for their bairns it was to earn more than two years rent what mother wouldn't have been eager to earn five and twenty pound by one night's work oh god oh god what a black night's work for me and mine and it was your doing miss higginson it was all your doing susan kettering remonstrated the woman who had spoken before you mustn't go on like this there ain't no justice on it oh let her talk 
said Sibyl, standing on the threshold, leaning against the door post, with white face and dry, haggard eyes. Let her talk, poor soul. But it is quite certain that the boat has gone down, she asked, appealing to the women generally. Is there no hope? No, miss, there ain't no hope. There's been enough rotten timber washed ashore to show that the Mary Jane was mashed up in that heavy sea. But it's no fault of yourn, Miss Higginson, and if Susan just wasn't crazed with grief, she'd never say such things. No hope, murmured Sybil with quivering lips. No hope for the grief-stricken wife and these fatherless children, but what of him for whom that fated boat had been put out to sea. He might have been landed safely before the evil hour in which the Mary Jane was blown upon the rocks. All was uncertain yet as to his fate, and her pity for this mourner with the bloodshot eyes and wild hair and distracted movements of clenched hands and writhing arms was made keener by the thought that Brandon Mountfort might be safe on shore. "'Was it far from here that the boat was wrecked?' she asked the elderly woman who had spoken last. "'Yes, miss. Half a dozen miles or so, if you went ashore where they think you did, on the Hurraby Rocks. It's a bad place, that is. There has been many a wreck there within the memory of the old people hereabouts.' Six miles further north,' mused Sybil. "'That would be near Allen Bay.' yes miss this side of the bay a mile nearer home and ellen bay would have been a safe place to land anyone out of the boat safe enough if they could have run along shore in such a wind but the lord knows if they could it was a wicked wind what time was the gale at its worst between six and seven miss ah yes she remembered looking at the clock on her mantelpiece while that howling shrieking of the wind was at its loudest when the venetian shutters were rattling as if they would be torn from their fastenings and the solid window frame were shaken and the massive stone chimney seemed to vibrate and tremble above the roof past six and brandon had gone on board the mary jane before three o'clock there would have been time to land him at Allen Bay, and more than time under any reasonable conditions of wind and sea, but who can reckon time when the frail boat has to fight every yard of progress, when the forces of nature are set against the frail cockle-shell in which the low-born breadwinner tempts the sea? Still there was hope, hope for her, though not two of mary jane's rotten timbers still held together she bent over the weeping widow gently touched the coarse dishevelled hair with delicate fingers and gently stroked the burning forehead rugged with the premature wrinkles that come of toil and care hard weather and a hard life i am deeply sorry for you my poor friend and you may be sure that i will take care of you and these poor children always always 
sorry for me cried the widow starting up pushing away the gentle hand who wants your sorrow who wants your care do you think i'd take another sixpence of your money the money that bought my good man's life you and your father think money can buy anything what are we but your slaves and we go about saying how good you are how that you have got everything while we have to toil for our daily bread in the pit or on the sea danger and darkness both it don't much matter which there's always death waiting around the corner for us while well, you sit at home and take your ease and think there's nothing on this earth that's too good for you and now to save your sweetheart a madman and a murderer my true-hearted husband has gone to the bottom of the sea hush now susan you mustn't take on like this it ain't fair remonstrated the elder woman and there was a murmured chorus of disapproval from the others don't mind her miss she's downright daft said one it's a shame to go on at you that it has that it has always been so good to us she'll be sorry enough for what she has said when she comes to her right senses i shall be sorry for her all the days of my life sibyl answered sadly let me speak to you a minute outside mrs garforth she added in a lower voice to the widow's elderly kinswoman mrs garforth followed quickly to the door don't take any money from her screamed susan kettering not one penny of her cursed brass it's cost me my husband not a dirty penny not her voice rose to a scream and then there came a burst of hysterical laughter as she flung herself violently on the bed where the baby woke looked about for a moment or two with seared scared eyes and set up a piteous wail two other babies took up the note and squalled in sympathy oh miss it's too bad of her said mrs garforth when she and sibyl had walked a few paces along the lane and were out of hearing of the tempest inside the cottage but she ain't in her right mind and you looking so ill too she added noting the girl's ashen cheeks and hollow eyes and such trouble up at the great house yes trouble has come upon us terrible trouble i never knew what it meant till now i have never been half sorry enough for others don't say that miss you've always been kind to us none that was in trouble or sickness ever went to ellerslie for help in vain poor susan has no call to blame you for her loss jack was asked to undertake a risky job and he was offered a good price for it and he could say yes or no she persuaded him to say yes and that's what makes her heart so sore poor creature did they think there was a risk last night before the boat went out lord yes dear lady them as know the coast knowed as there was a gale comin 
and he knew mr urquhart he must have known well miss he's a landsman you see and he's bound to know the coast seeing killander castle ain't far off but of course he wanted to get your sweetheart away and when a man's in danger of being tried for his life and there's only one road by which he can get away folks can't be particular about the weather along that ere road you mustn't talk of mr mountford as my sweetheart mrs garford he was nothing to me but a, a friend a very dear friend what wasn't you and him keeping company miss no no ah people hereabouts is good uns to talk they'd all have had it that you and him was sweethearts and you was almost out of your mind about him last night like poor susan to-day about her jack and that you was at the lock-up with him best part of the night martha hessel said she and susan saw you there partin' with him and just afore he went off to the boat with mr urquhart <laughs> let them talk sibyl interrupted haughtily this gentleman is a relation we are distant cousins i know he is innocent i know it by my own instinct you understand and my father believes in him as firmly as i do i should have been a cowardly wretch if i had not helped mr urquhart to get him out of prison before more injustice was done all i could do was to help with money which my father gave me for that purpose you can't suppose i care what these people think she was beginning to feel the sting of public ingratitude she had been very kind to these people though Ardliston lay beyond the immediate surroundings of her home she had gone out of her way to be kind to them and had thought herself beloved by them i must go home she said drying the tears that stung her burning eyeballs every now and then in spite of that proud spirit of hers which made her strong to bear calamity i want to help mrs kettering and her children as much as i can will you look after them for me mrs garforth and see that they want for nothing if you can come to ellerslie park this afternoon i'll give you some money to keep in hand for them and i'll tell you what i want done in the future if the father risked his life and lost it for my kinsman's sake those children ought to be in my care till they are old enough to care for themselves your noble-hearted young lady and by and by when she's calmed down a bit susan will be as grateful to you as i am now for her sake. End of chapter 14